everyone and welcome to the Tyndall Center video podcast. I'm Renee from the Tyndall Center at the University of East Anglia. Today, our topic is about the future of international assessments. And this is the first of two parts for this conversation between Tyndall Center Director Robert Nichols and Professor Bob Watson. In this first part, we focus on three key points. First, we will talk about the basic components of the science policy interface that these assessments are trying to inform and influence. Second, the key criteria needed to produce influential assessments. And third, where are we today with assessments and where do we need to go from here to make needed progress? Let's welcome Professor Robert Nichols and Professor Bob Watson. Welcome to our sort of our podcast looking at the future of international climate assessment. We've had recently the Tyndall Assembly 2020, which was online for the first time, and we were um, very pleased to have Bob Watson sharing his thoughts on this topic. Bob is a, a former um, strategic director of the Tyndall Centre, and he has a lot of experience on this issue of climate assessment and more widely. Um, I wonder, Bob, would you like to just maybe share a little bit of, of your background in assessment both of climate maybe and other issues just to let the listeners understand your background a bit. Thank you. The first international assessment I chaired was in actually 1980-1981 which was on stratospheric ozone depletion. Uh, since then I probably chaired about 10 international assessments on ozone depletion all the way through to about 2015. Uh, since then, I've also chaired assessments, international and national, on biodiversity and ecosystems, climate change and agriculture. So a very wide range of assessments, uh, in all cases, making sure they were policy relevant as well as good academic credentials so we could influence policy making at both the national and international level. Well, th thanks. Thanks for that then. So, so you've raised the sort of science policy interface. So what are the basic components that you think are needed there so that, so that you can accomplish that goal? If you could expand on that a little bit, please. Yeah, I think there's clearly three major components. The first, of course, is generating knowledge. That is national and international scientific assessments. Uh, the second one is actually con uh, using that information in national and international assessments to make sure that policymakers have the best credible knowledge in order to have evidence-based policy making. The third area, of course, at the national levels, there's policy making. And at the international level, we've got conventions. We have conventions on climate, biodiversity, land degradation. And so we have a, tro a troika, knowledge generation, assessing knowledge, and then making sure knowledge is put into the science policy interface. The third broad area or fourth broad area is what covers all of this. And that is at this moment in time, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 of them. They embrace the three envir the environmental issues of climate change, loss of biodiversity and land degradation. But they also cover really critical issues of food security, water security, human health, sustainable production and, and uh, consumption. So we have a really nice, what I call, policy interface between academia and policymakers at the national and international level. Thanks then, Bob. Uh, so it, it strikes me then you have to really produce 
as you say, an influential assessment. I think you used that word. Are there, what, are there some particular criteria that might be useful to achieve that goal? I think there's actually quite a few of them, to be honest. The first is that these assessments need to be produced by the world's best recognised scientists. And we need intellectual balance. We need natural scientists, social scientists, scientists from the humanities, technologies, even people are knowledgeable in law and business. Uh, we also need very good geographic balance. If we're going to influence policy making at the international level, we have to be sure that we have world-class experts from all regions of the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, North America, all need to be involved, i.e. developed countries, developing countries with economies in transition. We also have to have gender participation, really crucial to make sure there's gender balance in all of our assessments. Uh, and lastly, what I would argue is we need to mix in on an equal basis people with indigenous and local knowledge. So we need experts right across the spectrum to tackle all of these areas issues. Now, a crucial issue is we also want these experts to come from academia, intellectual think tanks, governments, and the private sector, but they must be there in their individual capacity, their knowledge, not representing a government, not representing a corporate view, not representing an NGO view. So being chosen in an open and transparent process is absolutely crucial. As I've already said, we must incorporate indigenous and local knowledge into our assessments, particularly important for biodiversity or even the impact of climate change at a local level. And therefore we need to make sure we have experts in indigenous peoples and local communities, absolutely crucial. Another point that I think is really important is that while most scientists think they know what policymakers want, it has to be co-produced. We have to make sure that our assessments are demand driven. What are the questions that are being asked in government? What are the questions being asked by the private sector, by the NGOs, and of course, by civil society? So we need to make sure that we have evidence-based, relevant dis uh, evidence for policymakers. But it also, what's most crucial is to make sure we've got processes that are legitimate, transparent and open. So everyone understands what's the process for selecting the topics? What's the process for selecting the experts? How do we do peer review, etc.? So all assessments need very well defined and open and transparent principles and procedures. A crucial thing is, of course, not only what do we know, but what's unknown or what's uncertain. So letting a policymaker, a decision maker know what things are we really certain about versus what things are we quite uncertain about. Now, the one area where maybe we can do better in the future than we've done in the past is when we've got uncertainty, what are the implications of those uncertainties for decision makers, for policy formulation, for policy implementation? Sometimes you can have a very large uncertainty in science that's intriguing to scientists, but doesn't have much policy relevance. Another time, you can have quite a small uncertainty in knowledge, but be quite critical for the way you design and implement a policy. Obviously, we need to make sure we cover all aspects that are relevant for policymaking. The social aspects, the environmental aspects, the economic aspects. And we have to talk about 
what are the implications of inaction, doing nothing on climate change, doing nothing on the loss of biodiversity, versus what are the implications of taking action? What are the costs of inaction versus the costs of action? Not just the economic costs, but the social costs as well. We all recognize, and we've recognized for a long while, that technologies are crucial, policies are crucial. But it's clear in the last uh, decade or so, we've finally recognized the importance of behavior. Individual behavior, collective behavior. This is where the social sciences and the humanities play a really critical role. It's also crucial, as I've said, not only to be multi-thematic, but we need to be multi-spatial. How do we go from the, the local level to the national level to the global weather with a consistent conceptual framework? We have to look at all levels. All levels are crucial for policy implementation. We also need to be uh, multi-temporal. We need to look back in time. How has the environment changed? Why has it changed? What were the drivers of change? Where are we now? And of course, we have to look forward. We need to use plausible futures, absolutely crucial for a decision maker, exploratory futures. Where might we go in the next 50 years, which are dependent on economic growth, uh, dependent on the number of people we've got, demographic changes, cultural choices, technology choices. But we can also be uh, what we call target seeking. If we want to meet a target like two degrees Celsius, what are the different pathways, policies, technologies, behavioral changes that will get there? Also, we can do policy screaming and policy retrospective analysis. Did a policy work in the way we thought a policy would work? And as I said earlier, what we need to do on all of these assessments and make sure they're really relevant to decision makers. So in the climate biodiversity arena, what are the big policies? We need to be relevant for the climate convention, the biodiversity convention and the UN sustainable, ever, uh, sustainable development goals. There are some very tricky issues that can actually be more ideological and evidence-based if we're not careful. And it's crucial that all of these assessments remain evidence-based and not ideological. Uh, a good example would be genetic modification. Strong views in the public, strong views by different governments, and they often try and push an ideological perspective rather than an evidence-based perspective. Also occurs in climate with fracking at the moment. What do we know about fracking? Is it safe or not? Independent of whether you think we should or should not use fossil fuels, and I strongly believe we should not use fossil fuels, there are independent issues about the safety, the environmental safety of fracking. And so we have to differentiate evidence uh, from ideological views. Something crucial is, and it's particularly important in the biodiversity assessments, and that's actually recognizing diverse worldviews. All of us interact with nature in a different way. We're all part of nature, but indigenous people are truly part of nature. They see themselves as part of nature. And so the question is, how do we value nature? If you're rich in a country like the United States or the UK, we may view nature in a certain way. Can we do ecotourism? Go to Africa to see wildlife. But if you're a native in a country where you depend on nature for your livelihoods, you have a very different value system. So when we try and design policies, we need to take into account the wide range of values that different people have. 
this is instrumental values. To what degree do to what degree do we use nature for food production, energy production, fiber production? To what degree do we recognize intrinsic value that even if we humans were not here on Earth, nature has value in its own right? And then of course there's relational values. How do we relate to nature? We walk through a park, we walk by a river, we get mental well-being. All of these values need to be understood, some quantitative, some qualitative, but all have to be taken into consideration. But the bottom line as scientists, we have to recognize that while scientific evidence is a necessary, it is not a sufficient condition for informed evidence-based policy formulation and implementation. A decision maker has many issues that they have to weigh before deciding on an appropriate policy. What we can provide is appropriate input. Oh, that, well, that, thank you for that. That's a very comprehensive sort of view of the issue of assessment and the many, many dimensions um, of, the, of, of the issue. You touched on in, in your answer there where we might improve. And I suppose given today's status of assessment, you know, and I think drawing more widely than climate, where do you think progress in particular is sort of needed? What are the challenges of the next few years? I mean, we've got COP26 coming up and, you know, and the Paris, implementing the Paris Agreement. What are those, what are the challenges? Well, first, I think research is way too fragmented. We do at the international scale now have Future Earth, and it has now combined social sciences with natural sciences and the humanities. But I would argue that in most countries, multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary science, the sort of science that's done at Tyndall is not well funded by research councils in the UK or by the government departments. They're still too stovepipe. So we need funding agencies that understand the importance of transdisciplinary research. We need research journals that understand the uh, importance of trans and multidisciplinary research. Most of them are still highly specialized along thematic lines. And so clearly we need a, an evolution in the way that research is funded and done and um, published. We also have to recognize, as I said earlier, we need a global perspective and unfortunately, the scientific communities in developing countries and in Eastern Europe are much, much weaker on these environment and development issues than they are in Europe, North America, Australia, etc. So the research is fragmented. Secondly, the conventions are fragmented. There's no common work program between the Climate Convention, the Biodiversity Convention, the Land Degradation, and a myriad of others, inv uh, inventions, conventions that look at environmental issues. So we need much more joined up policies, much more joined up work programs across the conventions. The UN, the UN system is fragmented. We have agencies in the UN for, that really deal with agriculture, FAO, deal with development, UNDP, science, UNESCO, uh, environment, uh, UNEP. These have to work together as well. We do not have a one UN system that is as coordinated as we actually need. Um, we need effectively the assessments are fragmented. Um, the IPCC is independent of the IPBES. Uh, so we do need to have much more joined up uh, processes at the assessment level. Now there is actually some movement in the right direction. 
but I, we see a, what I call a, a movement of the mandates, a very good movement in the, I might say. So the last IPCC assessments, 1.5C, the land uh, assessment, the oceans, they did a superb job, not just on the climate issues directly, but also an excellent job on many biodiversity issues. So a strong overlap in some areas with IPBES, Qu excellent quality work. So we need to get IPBES and IPCC to have more joint programs, basically. Uh, so there is overlap at that, le that level as well. I mentioned that the international agencies are also stovepipe, but so are the national agencies. When we talk about climate change, biodiversity, land degradation, this is, these are not just issues for the Environment Department in London, nor the Energy Department, or the Transportation Department, or local government. We need all of them to work together to think through what appropriate policies are in a formulation and implementation, basically. So we need people to work together. And of course, I'm missing the obvious. We not only need governments to be coordinated, the scientific community to be coordinated, we need to work with the private sector. We need to work with the NGOs. No one of these groups can solve these issues alone. We have to have trust in each other and we have to work together. So, you, so I think the, what I got from that was fragmentation really in many, in many senses is the problem. Well, thank you very much. I think, again, very sort of inspiring. Um, lots and lots of material there to be thought about today and for years to come. And thank you very much indeed. Hi, everyone. Renee again here. And thank you for joining us for this first part of our video podcast. Here's a quick recap of what we learned today. First, we talked about the key components of international assessments and why they are important. So we learned that one, they generate knowledge, two, they inform policymakers for evidence-based policymaking, and three, we need them to inform the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Second, we tackled the key criteria needed to produce an influential assessment. Professor Watson emphasized on the importance of balance and participation, intellectual balance from different fields of research, and geographic balance making sure that all regions of the world are represented. Gender balance and indigenous and local knowledge must also be present in these assessments. And we also need an open and transparent process. And of course, these assessments must tackle scientific uncertainties and we need to make sure that these assessments are relevant to policymakers. And the last topic we discussed for today is about the challenges we face and where we go from here. We learned that the biggest problem we are facing is fragmentation. We have fragmented research, fragmented conventions, a fragmented UN system, and even fragmented government agencies. So what we need to do is to be coordinated, trust each other, and work together. So again, thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to watch the second part of this two-part series by clicking on the link below.